Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner, Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Robin Hansen, among many other things, one of the foundational thinkers of prediction markets. Robin, welcome to welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. I know you're extremely against prestige, but you're making an exception <laughs> to be uh, to be on this very prestigious podcast. I think I'm wary of prestige. It would be kind of too much to be overall overall against it. I mean, it's too too embedded in what we do. But totally. Okay, so we're here to talk about prediction markets. For those who who may not be as informed, please describe what prediction markets are and and why they're so game-changing. So a betting market or a speculative market is like stocks or commodities or currency futures. It's a place where there's something that you can buy and sell and you can speculate. So uh, if you buy today and sell tomorrow and the price goes up during these two days, then uh, you can walk away with cash. And if you sell today and, and buy tomorrow, you also walk away with cash. So speculative market's been around for a long time. And they've you know, mostly been there as a side effect of people wanting to have markets for other things. But in the last few decades, people have thought more about making markets on purpose because you want to know the answer to a question. So say if you have a company or a project and it has a deadline, you might want to know, will we make the deadline? And uh, one way to do that, of course, is to have meetings and have everybody say uh, whether they think you're going to make the deadline. And that often doesn't go very well. And so another approach is to have a simple betting market where people can bet on whether you make the deadline. They can bet anonymously. And so there's, say, maybe an asset that pays $10 if you make the deadline. And if the going price is $3 for it, then that represents roughly a 30% chance of making the deadline. And if you think the probability is higher than 30%, then you could buy. If you think it's lower, you could sell. The net effect of people buying and selling is to create a consensus estimate of the chance of making the deadline. So that's the key idea. It's the mechanism is you know just like an ordinary betting market or ordinary special speculative market. But the idea is that you could do this on purpose and learn things that you wouldn't otherwise learn by creating a market that talks about the question you want an answer to. And, and give, let's give a concrete example. One, one of the ones you like to give is about whether we, or not we should fire the CEO. Well, so the, the first idea is just, will, you know, some event like, will we make a deadline? Now, we can also do conditional markets, which have an enormous and interesting range of applications. Here's where we bet on an outcome given another choice or another event. So a lot of choices we make, we could have markets inform us about these choices by have, asking the markets to tell us an outcome given a choice. So, for example... Firms are often wondering whether they should keep their current CEO. And a relevant outcome for a firm might be its stock price. And so you might ask, well, is it a good idea to keep our CEO or not? That would track the expected value of the stock conditional on keeping the CEO or conditional on not keeping the CEO. That's the numbers we might want to get. And we're especially interested in the difference between those two. The expected value of the stock is worth more. If we don't have the current CEO, then we should probably get rid of them. So we can ask speculative markets to estimate these things. It's a little bit more complicated than the simplest market, but not that much so. So in an ordinary stock market, you trade stock for cash. That is, if the current price of the stock is 21, that means you can get one stock for $21. And if you think it's really worth 22, you buy and pay 21 and you get the stock and you think you've made money. 
So the idea now is to do conditional trades. So when you're trading stock for cash, you're asking yourself, thinking about all the different situations where you know the company could go and the world could go, et cetera. In each situation, you're going to ask yourself, how much would the company be worth then? And then you're trying to do a weighted average over all the situations. And that's roughly how you'd guess the stock price. Which situations could the company be worth more? Which situations would they, they be worth less? You could do a conditional or called off trade in a stock price where you trade the stock for cash, but call off the trade if the CEO is no longer in that job at the end of this quarter. So that would be a conditional estimate. And when you're thinking about that trade, you'd only be looking at the scenarios where the CEO stays in office till the end of the quarter. Any scenario where that doesn't happen, this trade is going to get called off. So you're not interested in that value for the purpose of this trade. So we could do a trade of the stock for cash conditional on the CEO staying in office till the end of the quarter. We could also have a different market where we trade the stock for cash conditional on the CEO not staying until the end of the quarter. That would be the opposite set of situations. And that would presumably have a different price. And then the difference in those two prices would give us decision advice, should we keep the CEO? So often when we think about things we could bet on, we think, well, there's a few interesting horse race things we could bet on, but most things that are relevant for our real organizations are just not things you could bet on. But this should make you realize that anytime you have a concrete decision with a set of specific options you might choose from, like keep the CEO or fire the CEO, and you have some outcome measures that track roughly what you want out of that decision, like the stock price of the company, then you can directly ask these markets to advise you about that decision with respect to that outcome. You can say which CEO is keeping the CEO or letting the CEO go better or worse for the stock price of the company. And the idea behind this as to why we would do something like this is that we think that people at the company know more about the level of the CEO than a board member who meets with the CEO once a month. Is, is that correct? Well, more generally, when we want to estimate things like uh, whether we'll make a deadline or the stock price given the CEO, we have a variety of information institutions and processes available to us. So the world is complicated. There are lots of cues we could be using, lots of data we could be collecting. There's lots of people we could be asking. There's lots of methods of analysis different people could use. And a very basic social question is, how can we best estimate the things we want to estimate, like whether we'll make the deadline. So a prediction market is a method or an institution for making that sort of estimate, and it does very well by comparison with other institutions. So by far the main argument for prediction markets is that they just seem to work really well. We have some theoretical reasons why we might expect that to be true, but those theoretical reasons are less persuasive than the fact that they just really work. So Consistently, say, if you look at a stock market or a currency market or a commodity market, it's just really hard to make an estimate that beats the current market price. I mean, sometimes people can, but they spend years and years struggling to do it, and sometimes they find it for a while, and then it goes away. And that's also true in betting markets, not only on sport events, but on most anything else. Uh, compared to other mechanisms, these markets just work really well. Typically, when we've gone in with head-to-head comparisons, we've had a market on something, and then we maybe have a committee, or we have a poll, or we have some other way that, of producing an estimate. Typically, the market will do about as well or substantially better, not worse. This isn't just sort of casually like a tool in the toolkit, similar to perhaps how you know crypto believers believe you know decentralize all the things. You're, you're a believer that we should have prediction markets for for almost you know for almost everything, and we should trust. Well, I'd say the, the scope of application is much larger than the current scope of application of the, the potential. They could be used much wider. I'm not sure I want to say they, they should be used for everything. I, I expect, imagine a world where they use a lot more 
there'd still be a great many things that you're not using them for. Uh, so it's a, it's a mildly expensive way to ask a question. And of course, there's a vast space of questions you aren't asking all the time, right? Uh, you, you only have limited resources, so you want to decide which questions to be asking, uh, especially you know not only to yourself in your head, but out loud to other people. So creating a prediction market is basically asking the question. If you create the prediction market on, say, the stock price given CEO saying or leaving, you're asking the question, what is which of those decisions is better for the stock price? If that's an important enough question, then it's worth asking that question this way. But you know, the, the space of all possible questions to ask is far larger than the resources we have to ask questions, so we always have to be selective. So you could create a prediction market about what I had for breakfast, uh, but first you could ask yourself, do you care? Well, is that important enough to even know? And second, you might ask, well, if that's important enough to know, is a prediction market the best method for that? And I might say, well, just asking me what I had for breakfast probably usually goes better right. in the sense that the accuracy there is pretty high and mostly that's good enough for your purposes. Yeah. Zooming out a bit, what are sort of the, for, for one to believe that prediction markets have the uh, possibility of having a big impact, what are sort of the fundamental assumptions inherent in that in that suggestion? What do you have to believe in order to, to really be all about prediction markets? Well, you have to think that you can ask questions of the form that a prediction market will be able to answer. Uh, so prediction markets need the components to be things you can see after the fact. So when you ask which whether keeping the CEO is better or not for the stock price, you have to think that you can tell whether or not you kept the CEO, and you have to think that you can see the stock price later. That's the kind of question that is. The two parts of it are things you can see later. So there are many other questions you might ask that it's much harder to see later, like is there a God or something? Or does God love cornflakes? Uh, you know, you, you can imagine asking a question. Or does God like cornflakes better than brain flakes? Maybe more specific. You can imagine asking a question, but it's just hard to think of how you could check that after the fact. So that makes it harder to put a prediction market on it. And there are related mechanisms that you could try. But just to be clear, prediction market is one mechanism in a large space of related mechanisms. So I'm more advocating, you know, the space of related mechanisms than any one particular variation. But I'm happy to pick a particular variation for concreteness because, you know, compared to all the other things we usually use, that particular variation is going to often be quite much better. But anyway, one key assumption is that you can ask questions of the form the prediction market needs, which is things you will eventually know later, at least the parts of them. Let's give some concrete examples. I, I want to name a, a field or industry, and I want I want you to give me sort of a, a concrete example of how prediction markets could could influence that that field. How, how about journalism? Okay, so you always uh, information is relevant to a decision. So you want to find what's the decision I want to inform. So one decision might be to hire a particular person as a columnist. Say, uh, do I want this person to be a columnist on the New York Times or Vox or something like that? And you have a choice of columnists, but now you're going to pick one of them and, and put them in the slot. And if you are the media outlet, then you might care about the impact of that columnist on your bottom line. So you might be satisfied with a proxy, like how many people watched their articles or talk about them, or you might want to know directly how much how much does our readership go up if we had this columnist. Those would be concrete questions you might be interested in asking because your key question is, should I hire this columnist? Now, as a reader, you might have a different question. I'm looking at an article. Uh, is it true? Or I'm looking at a claim in an article. Is it true? So for that purpose, as a reader, you might want a prediction market in that particular claim that that particular article has. So that would be a very different 
purpose. Now, of course, uh, that's assuming you do want to know how true the claims are, and, and we have some evidence that suggests people don't actually care that much. Uh, so maybe what you really care about is what's the chance that somebody in the near future will talk about this and that I can therefore feel knowledgeable by bringing it up. So if, if people are mainly interested in uh, you know, reading stuff that other people will talk about so that they can sound knowledgeable when the subject comes up, well, then what they really want to know is, will the subject come up? And will I be able to say something intelligent-sounding as a result of having read this article? And, and this is that, that sort of is your overarching belief as to why prediction markets aren't more widespread, given that it's so important, whether we know whether we'll make the deadline or the quality of our decisions. Your belief is that we don't really care. We say we want, it, we want truth, but we don't really care. Is that sort of fair to, fair to say? I and Kevin Simler had this book out a few months ago called The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. And the theme is that well, we are wrong about our motives a lot. So we tend to have a certain set of favorite sub- suspects that we have when we want to explain ourselves in terms of our motives. They are good-looking motives, things that we can be proud of. And then our actual motives tend to be more varied and not quite as impressive or admirable. Collecting and and analyzing information is one of those classic rationales that everybody respects. Who can be against it? So in in most organizations, you know, a lot of what's going on is politics. But if you pick any one thing you're doing and saying, why are you doing that? Your favorite rationale is often, well, I'm collecting and analyzing information. I'm uh, talking to people and finding out what they know and reading things and finding out what that knows. And then I'm doing some analysis to, to process that and together into some summary estimates so that we can make better decisions. Who could be against that? And of course, that's also true in our personal lives. And when we talk about news and we gossip, collecting and sharing information is this uh, good sounding rationale. And so uh, we often point to that rationale as a rationale for what we're doing. And if that rationale were true, then we'd be more interested in prediction markets because prediction markets can quite often give you accurate information about whatever the thing you wanted information about is. But if it's more of an excuse, the kind of thing we like to point to because we like to have a good sounding excuse, then it may not be that we actually want more information. Or maybe what we want is more information of a certain sort in a certain context that allows us to, you know, say it to support a certain story or something. Maybe maybe what we want is support for a pre-existing conclusion. Or uh, maybe when we want evidence that will make us look good and not evidence that will make us look bad or, you know, et cetera. So what we want might be of the form information, except we're not just trying to get the most accurate estimate on something. We're instead trying to get information that will fit to a story that we want to tell. How about healthcare? What are some examples or what's an example of how prediction markets are unique to healthcare? Well, the most obvious thing in healthcare is as a patient, uh, you have some condition and uh, there's a set of possible treatments available. And you might want a prediction market to tell you, if you tried each treatment, how would your outcomes be? Would your rash go away? Would your pain go away? Would you feel stronger? Would your fever go down? You know, whatever are the key symptoms that you're concerned about. You might want to know for each treatment option whether that treat that, that particular treatment uh, will make the, you know, proper, the certain indicators go in the right direction. So that's clearly the sort of thing that you should want or say you want if you think that medicine is mostly about helping you to get better. Now, of course, from the other side, the medical, the physician, they might think, well, if I give you this treatment, what's the chance you will be happy with that or that you will come back and that you will uh, not leave our, you know, contract for some other contract, etc. That's a somewhat different outcome they might be interested in. What, which, which thing to tell you or treatment to, to give you uh, will make you come back and want more service. And of course, that may not be the same as the one that makes you feel better. How about politics? Politics. So again, in all these areas, 
There's the things you often say you want to know, and there's the things you really want, and those are different, and that's part of the problem here. So just to mention about medicine, people actually don't seem that interested in the effectiveness of treatments. <laughs> we, we actually have uh, data on offering people information on the effectiveness of treatments and finding they are just not interested. And so it doesn't appear that most patients do care very much about which treatments will produce which health effects. Even when you tell them this information, it's sort of when we're aware that we're signaling. Even if you give them the information, they, 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 they won't use it. And if you ask them to pay for it, they refuse. So, so there was the famous study where people about to undergo surgery, these people was heart surgery and they faced a, you know, few percent risk of dying in the surgery. So it was not a trivial kind of surgery. And uh, there were statistics about the hospitals and surgeons in their area and which ones had which death rates from the surgery. And of course, knowing which ones had which death rates might allow you to pick the surgeons or hospitals with the lower death rates, which therefore reduce your chance of dying by, say, a percent. And well, that should be worth a lot to you. If your value of your life is $5 million, then 1% is worth, you know, $50,000. But instead of being willing to pay $50,000 for this, uh, only 8% were willing to pay 50 bucks. So there's an enormous lack of interest in this information. And this is a consistent result we've seen across other kinds of medical information studies. Uh, people just are not interested. They don't want to know. They, they just want to pick a doctor and have them pick and, and not have to think about it. How about something like religion? Let's say I'm talking to the Pope and I'm saying, hey, Robin, how should I be using prediction markets to improve my goals beyond the, the obvious ones that, that apply to every organization? Like what, what uniquely to, to religion? Well, uh, you know, again... So in most industries, it's easier to understand the motives of the suppliers than the demanders. So we, we better understand what doctors are trying to do than what patients are trying to do. We understand what teachers are trying to do or you know schools are trying to do relative to what students are trying to do. And in religion, we better understand what the priests and pastors are trying to do than what the you know people who attend religion are trying to do. So if, if you're a religion and you're you know, uh, people are often interested. What what can we do to get more people to come to our church? What can we do to get more people to come more often to our church and put more money in the, you know, donation plate? Um, what can we do to get more people to say they're happy about what happens at our church? You know, and of course, you know, you might want this mode this in the long run, not just the short run. Whereas, of course, from the other side of it, uh, it's more about what you're getting out of the religion. You know. You, you could say, you know, in 30 years, will I be happy that I stuck with this religion or will I be, you know, have buyer's remorse thinking this wasn't such a great religion to stick with? You, you asked about politics before. In politics, most of us say that we want better outcomes. So it would be straightforward to, say, have markets on in the next presidential election, whether the choice is whether a Democrat or Republican, say, will be the president. That's one of the choices, of course. And outcomes might be things like uh, GDP, uh, lifespan, war deaths, you know, international prestige, etc. So you could have prediction markets on those things that said which of the candidates would better produce those outcomes. And that would be straightforward to do. Uh, you can also, each party can have a um, market in, if we nominate this candidate, what's the chance we'll win? And we've actually had markets in that uh, in the last few last decade or so that is we've had markets in the chance of any one person being nominated and we have had markets in the chance of any one person becoming elected and so the ratio of those two is in fact the chance they'll be elected conditional on them being nominated and that's direct advice to the parties about who to nominate all else equal you want to nominate someone who is likely to win 
but there's very little interest in these markets and for these purposes. There's enormous interest in betting on who will win, uh, but very little interest in betting on the consequence of someone winning. And this is plausibly because most of us don't actually care very much about the consequence of who wins. We, we, we just care about showing loyalty to our side. And what would need to be true to change to change that, or is that unchangeable? Like, one of my questions to you is, how do we popularize prediction market? If, if a bunch of if Kanye West was saying, "Hey, vote," <laughs> or you know, let, let's adopt prediction market. Like, w- w- what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, there's a lot of potential. It's hard to know exactly what the best path is. But you know, first of all, we we just should have these markets. So let's imagine we had some markets in the Democrat versus Republican president, and the consequences. Again, war deaths, GDP, lifespans, things like that. Well, if those markets existed and people were to point to them and talk to them, talk about them, and say, you know, I'm voting for the Republican because looks like lifespans would be higher with the Republican, then that could become part of the argument system, uh, the reasons people are invoking for the different candidates. And then it might, you know, if one candidate was just worse on everything, well, then that might make them just not something you want to vote for, and then before that, the parties wouldn't nominate them. Because they'd say, we can't nominate somebody who's going to be worse than all these things. Uh, so, you know, if the markets existed and people saw them as authoritative enough to point to them sometimes and say, I believe that this candidate is better for lifespan because of this market, well, then that could, you know, change the political discussion such that people would be a little ashamed or not too proud of voting for someone who would have bad outcomes there. We're not at that point remotely yet because these markets don't even exist and to the extent things like them have existed in the past people have hardly ever talked about them in the context of arguing about who to vote for so what do we need in order for them to exist and maybe we can segue to what's sort of the state of prediction markets in in 2018 and you've been doing work on this for over 20 years Where, where are we at today well there has been a lot of interest over the last few decades a lot of academic work, people writing papers, people doing you know theory studies and data studies, people doing some projects and trials, writing you know stories about them in the media, doing papers about them, etc. But where we're basically sitting is that uh, for markets within organizations, we've been able to do them for a while, and the main problem is a lack of interest. So uh, there is this uh, legal limit. So for public markets, like on which president will have which lifespan effect. There are anti-gambling laws that stand in the way. Now, in the last month or so, there was a, there was a court ruling that said that states could allow these things, and maybe we will see states allowing more of them in the, over the next year or so. But that's been a legal limit on the public markets. But markets within an organization, like within your firm, about whether you're going to make a deadline, the legal problem, the legal limits aren't the gambling laws don't really get in the way there. So, gambling law requires three things: there has to be consideration in you, you pay in consideration out, you might win something, and there has to be chance in between. You take a chance. You put something in, you take a chance on getting something out. That's what gambling is. And so for markets within organizations, uh, the company, say, can just stake you for your uh, what you're going to bet. And so now you didn't put anything in. And so now that's not gambling. Now, there, there's a, some potential limitations in insider trading in that uh, you want to keep away from the topics that might be considered insider topics, whereby the markets would be giving some people insider access to information that other people aren't getting. But that still leaves a lot of possibilities. The, the key limitation is just a lack of interest. And more specifically, it's a lack of interest because of political disruption. So we've had a lot of trials where people have tried these markets, and they have consistently worked well by the metrics that people set up in terms of cost and user satisfaction and accuracy. 
predictor markets have consistently given the same or more accuracy than other methods. They've consistently had people enjoy participating in them and have mild costs, but they've also consistently not lasted and gotten killed. And the reason is that they have been consistently politically disruptive. So I can go through a concrete example in the case of deadlines. Deadlines are one of the most uh, dramatic successes prediction markets have had if you think about accuracy in the sense that often, you know, the official meetings say we're going to make a deadline and then you set up a market and it says no way you're going to make the deadline. It might say, you know, 5% chance or less. So that's a big disagreement. And of course, consistently the markets were right and the official forecasts were wrong. So that's a big improvement in accuracy. And the people trading in the markets, they like it. They like to have their voice heard and, and be part of a process that tells people their real accuracy. And the costs are relatively mild. Problem is, markets that tell you if you aren't going to make a deadline are politically disruptive. That is, often people in the organizations take stances, public stances, on whether the project will make a deadline. And then the market contradicts them, and the market makes them look bad because the market's right and they're wrong. And we understand this even in, in some more detail. So apparently we, we have data, for example, on managers of software managers and looking at how overconfident these software managers are in guessing how long it'll take to do any one software project. And it turns out the overconfident software managers, the one who think they can do it faster than they really can, these are favored by their managers. <laughs> the higher up people like the overconfident software managers over the people who are more accurate in their forecasting. And a plausible explanation is that the overconfident managers, well, first of all, they're more ambitious and they're trying to do more. And secondly, when they start not being able to deliver what they said they could deliver, they will push harder to get more done. So even if they don't deliver by the deadline, they might still get more done overall because they're just going to push harder. So that shows you how... So people often know that the forecasts about whether you make deadlines are wrong, and they this, they use the forecast as motivation. So if you know you're pretty sure to make a deadline or you're pretty sure not to make a deadline, you don't work as hard as if you think you're right on the edge of maybe making it or not, depending on how hard you work. People use deadlines and the uncertainty about making them as, as ways to get people to work harder. And another thing that goes on is that if you have a deadline and you're worried about your excuse if you fail, most people's favorite excuse is the thing that killed the project that meant we didn't make the deadline. The thing, it's a thing that came out of left field at the last minute. No one could have seen it coming and it'll never happen again. So to make that excuse, you need a track record of everybody saying it looks fine, it looks fine, and all of a sudden it, it doesn't work. If you set up a prediction market, more likely it's going to tell you it's not going to, right from the beginning, no, you're not going to make the deadline. And now you've got this track record of it telling you for months you aren't going to make the deadline. So you can't say this thing came out of left field that no one could have seen it coming because, hey, they saw it coming. You know, there are a lot of things that are politically disrupted, but we sort of standardize them. You, you mentioned cost accounting in, in another interview. Why, why isn't there an innovative CEO like Bezos or, or, or someone else saying, hey, we're going to implement prediction markets as a standard across our organization for, for deadlines? Well, maybe it just hasn't happened yet, and we can hope that it will happen. That's hard to tell. But a lot of things that happen in firms happen for political reasons. There's a lot of things we don't do because of political reasons, and maybe eventually we'll fix them all. But I have to say that uh, the simple idea that firms are basically profit-maximizing, and you can explain each decision according to that, just doesn't work so well, as far as I can see. The best explanation for most behavior is that it's in the political interest of local political factions. You mentioned lack of interest. At the same time, there seems to be, you know, with sort of the rise of blockchain, a resurgence uh, of sort of interest. You know, and I know you work with these platforms, in Gnosis, Augur, there are others. What, why, what is sort of the blockchain ideal for what blockchain brings to prediction markets? What, what's sort of the, 
the, the steel man argument of, of why there's there's something game changing there and where is it fallen short or, or where is it you know in terms of actual delivery in terms of you know regarding your experience working with these projects so, so we, we've had many years of people you know using prediction markets and they had a number of firms over the years that uh, supply software and services and there's you know packages of software that sit out there that firms have used so we've long had sufficient software and tools to create and manage prediction markets there came along you know blockchain and a bunch of people interested in using the blockchain and when they looked at what could we use the blockchain for prediction markets stood out to them as one of the things you could do because uh, you can do you know prediction markets pretty much all electronically you don't actually have to deal with much physical just you know the bets are can be specified with bits and the bets can be and, and the, the topics are specified with bits and uh, you know the res- resolution is specified with bits so it looked like you know hey we don't need to mess with the you know complicated physical world we can just do this on the blockchain there really wasn't much of a demand for decentralized prediction markets in the sense that you know, most of these firm markets, they don't need decentralization. That's not doesn't add much to the markets inside the firms. Now, the markets outside the firms, i.e., uh, say, a market on uh, sports betting or on presidential elections, those are currently limited by uh, anti-gambling laws and securities regulations. And so you might think, ah, a blockchain will let you get around those things. And in principle, that could happen. Of course, to, to, to actually, actually make, make that, that happen, happen, you have, have to be, be willing, willing to put up stuff on the blockchain that violates rules. So it's more of a legal uh, arbitrage than a Well, uh, a, a way, way to just avoid the law. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in order to successfully avoid the law, first, you know, the, the companies producing this stuff, they need to actually, you know, be able to hide from the law, which they haven't. So these firms producing prediction market software, they have not, you know, they've named themselves publicly and have public locations. They show up at conferences. So, so they have not gone the route of protecting themselves against legal, you know, things. So, so they have sort of given up, you know, at least personally on the route of just putting up illegal markets and, and getting away with it. But, you know, maybe somebody will do that. But, but there is a key question of, of where is the demand? That is, uh, there is a substantial demand, obviously, for sports betting. And so the key question is, what fraction of the sports betting market could you get from prediction markets on the blockchain? And since sports betting is largely illegal, whoever does that will have to uh, either be limit themselves to the small number of legal variations, or they'll have to set it up in a way that they can avoid the law coming to get them. And like I said, so far they, they haven't done that. They, they haven't gone the route of being anonymous and, and you know having nobody know their names or where they live or anything like that. Uh, but that's possible that someone might do in the future. As I say, I'm much more interested in the markets within organizations, and for that you don't need uh, the blockchain per se. But that doesn't mean that, you know, if people are putting a lot of effort into putting software in the blockchain, uh, just because it's on the blockchain and you didn't need the blockchain doesn't mean you might not want to use that software. Right. If enough work goes into it, you might still think, hey, that's good software, let's just use it. What are other areas besides sports betting that you think are sort of ripe for prediction markets in terms of there actually being some sort of latent demand there, just hasn't been realized yet, perhaps because the infrastructure isn't there, but is it is a behavior that you think could take Well, you're just looking at the existing financial markets. So, you know, you, you, if, you, if you do it right, you, you can make betting markets that mimic stock markets and currency markets and commodity markets. So uh, if you thought you wanted to avoid regulation on those things, you might be able to uh, do those things in the blockchain. I mean, that's a, that's a tall order because there exists pretty large, complicated, you know, markets in those things already. And even if they're regulated, they, they have scale economies, so they, they bring the cost down a lot through their scale economies. And so uh, trying to, to reproduce them separately on blockchain is, is, is a pretty 
challenging task because you're going to start out with a lot less activity and um, you know I'm going to have fixed costs and so that's going to raise the cost of doing things and you know that's hard you know, that, that's challenging how might prediction markets affect how we think about reputation and identity one scenario in identity is that uh, you grant someone an identity according to certain presumptions and, and documents etc and then later on that identity is found somebody says they stole my identity that's fake etc so clearly one of the the goals you have in identity is to have that not happen <laughs> to avoid handing out identities or, or, or respecting identities which are later proven to be uh, you know problematic so a prediction market could of course directly give you that kind of forecast you know you, you, if some some you know you might offer a provisional identity and then put it up to a larger community hey will this identity fly or not say it's, it's a way to do forecasting of course today you know there's there's a scale thing so so there's a lot of ways organizations do forecasting today that they just have to do a lot of forecasts and they have to do them really fast and cheap. And so the, the more fast and cheap you need to do your forecast, the harder it is for a prediction market to sit in that slot because the prediction market's going to be a little slower and more expensive. So, you know, if you've got a spam, you know, if you've got a spam system, you know, you're managing email accounts and you're trying to label some of the email messages as spam. Well, you're, you've got a lot of data and you, you can, you know, do machine learning statistics and, it might be awkward to sort of put up these email messages into a betting market to ask whether they're spam, just because there's so many of them and you need such a fast response. And so, uh, you know, part of the issue is how much can you focus on concentrated, important decisions uh, versus a lot of quick, fast decisions. So on, on the other, you know, if you, if you say identity to join a uh, country club or something, well, you know, that's going to be much more selective, right? And now you can afford to spend more to check somebody out to see whether you should let them join your country club. And now a prediction market could be a part of that process. Again, the more focal and, and important a decision is, the more it might make sense to put a prediction market on it. You know, I am, I am continuously surprised that, you know, given sort of the rise of sort of effective altruism and, and ra the rationality community is sort of like, you know, intellectual signals for people to be a part of those communities. I'm surprised that CEOs who are trying to signal their sort of intellectual nature aren't rushing to you know, announce that they're sort of using prediction markets at their companies because it would really sort of separate them from others. I mean, part of this is, is hypocrisy, <laughs> you know. So, so many people notice that prediction markets could help through cut through political bullshit. So, for example, like in global warming, uh, you might think those people warning against global warming, or you know, they don't really believe it, they're just exaggerating. Or on the other side, you might think those people are skeptical, they don't really mean it, they're just making excuses. So either side could think, well, if we just had a betting market on this, that would cut out that bullshit, and, and that would be good. And many people do say things like that, and have said things like that over the years. They, 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 they say, my side is obviously right, and their side is just making excuses and, and bullshitting. And then they notice, hey, if we have some bets, that could cut through the bullshit. And then they're initially excited. And then I think what happens is they start to realize, well, what if my side is bullshitting? I'm, how sure can I be that prediction markets will will pick them out as wrong as opposed to me? And so I think, I mean, this is a key thing that happens. People often just spout their mouth out on all sorts of things just with words. And as soon as the prospect of a bet comes up, all of a sudden these other parts of your mind turn on and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And you, you can just see this as soon as somebody challenges someone to a bet. Like you've been making these broad, strong claims about something and someone says, you want to bet on it? And as soon as someone says that, then all of a sudden the character of the conversation changes. Yep. Instead of these strong, bold claims that are 
expressed with moral indignation, people go, well, you could mean different things by this, couldn't you? And I guess there could be different signatures of this, and maybe it would happen in different times and ways, and and people get a lot more cautious and realistic about the details. So I think that happens in in a lot of these other contexts, too. Uh, People like the idea of a prediction market until they realize it might not support their side. And I expect the same thing happens in effective altruism. You want the most effective policies? Uh, you're in favor of that. Yay, a prediction market can help you predict the most effective policies. But except you're already in favor of certain policies that you think are the most effective ones. What if the market doesn't agree with you? What if it says these other policies are more effective? How Are you going to be happy with that? Well, according to your self-story, I just want the most effective policies. I don't care what they are. You, you are officially happy with that, right? But what if that's not true? What if you actually got your identity from being with a group of people who all believe together that certain particular policies are the most effective ones. You know, zooming out a little bit, how did you come to get so fascinated with prediction markets? And if, you know, more broadly, if you were writing sort of an intellectual memoir about your life, where would prediction markets fit in? For example, I wonder if you wrote The Elephant Brain as a, as a way to sort of discover why. I did, in fact. <laughs> Actually, that, that is the story. So the story would be, you know, I was a physics student long ago, and then I heard these things about science and what it was that didn't quite make sense. And so I decided I went to, into philosophy of science to understand the nature of science more. And I, I did answer, you know, many questions for myself in doing that. But that raised the higher question, well, how should we organize scientific inquiry and, and social consensus so that we could, you know, better come together on, on key opinions on key topics that we argue about in, the, in academic journals and in the news? Uh, so a lot of topics in in policy and politics in the news are are questions that supposedly science is often relevant for, like is gun control going to help with crime, uh, et cetera, things like that. Will regulation improve you know, efficiency of an industry, et cetera? If you look at the way we do that today, it looks unsatisfactory. And I was interested in how we could do that better. And I got involved. I read about hypertext publishing which was eventually what became the web. But before that, it was called Hypertext Publishing. And this was in the late 1980s. And I got excited by that as a solution. And I came to Silicon Valley and I hung out with people trying to do Hypertext Publishing at a group called Xanadu. And in the process of thinking through that vision of how that could help, I came to have more doubts about it. And so I was looking around for other things that might solve that problem uh, better. And since most of them were rabid libertarians, the idea of betting markets was just an easy idea to grab from that environment to say, well, what if we just had betting markets on these questions? Wouldn't that help cut through the bullshit and give us better estimates on these things? And that seemed like a a solid argument. And so I started to pursue that. And, and I pursued it for a while, and then I realized that maybe I couldn't go very far unless I had more context and credentials. So I went back to school to get a PhD. And in the process of learning more social science and, and getting a PhD, I found that there's a lot of other big ideas that would seem to have big improvements for our world, ways we could reform social institutions, not just prediction markets, but lots of other areas. And that was exciting. That's one of the reasons I went into it. But over time, I wondered why it was seemed to be so easy to find such things. And I realized that one of the main reasons is there's very little interest in adopting them. We just keep having these big ideas that would should be able to improve things a lot. And they sit on the shelf for decade after decade. And so that's a that was a key puzzle. And prediction markets is another example of that. So I learned over time that it's relatively easy to explain to people the idea of prediction markets and the advantages they should have. And it's relatively easy to get them in a nod, say that sounds promising. Yeah, somebody should try that. And very hard to get anybody to actually care about doing anything. And that's 
how it is for most of these social science-inspired uh, reforms. Easy to explain the rationale, easy to talk about why, even do math theorems, lab experiments, but very hard to get people in the wider world to care. Yeah, and, and that, that was, was the prompt for our, my book, The Elephant in the Brain. Over the years, I developed a perspective to help understand why we have so little interest on these things, and the book is trying to explain that perspective. What's the connection between prediction markets, if there is one, and your other book, Age of Age of M's? Age of M is about a future scenario, and so I, it's about forecasting in that sense. Uh, so in some sense, you could have tried to write a book like that with lots of prediction markets. And uh, you know, since I've been thinking about the future and forecasting for a while, uh, that's intersected with my thoughts about prediction markets and what they're good for, et cetera. And in this world I describe, I describe prediction markets as a institution that could grow. So when we do futurism, we usually imagine physical technologies that uh, that are possible but not yet cheap or common, and we tend to presume they will become cheaper and more common. So, you know, self-driving cars, uh, stronger batteries, you know, flying cars, things like that, right? That's just a standard way we do futurism. And we also know of a lot of social institutions that seem promising that we don't have now. And you might similarly in futurism think, well, we should presume that we will adopt more of those too. A futuristic world will not only have futuristic physical technologies, we will have futuristic social technologies. And so I laid out some of those possible futuristic social technologies in this book, and Prediction Markets was one of them. Let's address some of the most common critiques people have of, or concerns people have about prediction markets. I think one of them is, you know, perverse incentives and people like to bring up assassination markets or, or just the fact that you, the idea that people bet on a situation may lead to, you know, people doing all sorts of stuff just to win the bet in, in you know, assassination sure. markets being the obvious. And the second one that, you know, some people say that money makes people be irrational with their decisions, perhaps less, less open-minded to changing their views or, or even more tribalist in, in some weird way. Yeah. So, so in my experience, just at, at the meta level first, when you take something that doesn't currently exist and you say, should we do this thing? This alter you, you describe a way that the world is not now, but you say, uh, this makes sense and maybe we should try to do it. Especially with respect to social things, people will search immediately in their mind for some story about why this thing might not be a good idea. Why, what, what problem it might have. And they will even you know, tentatively decide, aha, that's why we don't have it. Of course, you know, you can also do this with physical technologies. You can say we, we don't have self-driving cars because they just can't work and they'll never work. But people with physical technologies and software technologies, people tend to have more of a presumption that, well, maybe the first versions won't work, but eventually we'll figure out variations that will work. But with social technologies, they don't have that presumption. <laughs> they tend to think if they can find a reason why some variation won't work, they're more willing to presume that, well, that's why all of it will never work. But it's not that they're actually concerned about these things. So, I mean, so we will go into these things and I think for each one we can address them. But I, I've noticed that if you give an idea and then people give objections and then you address the objections, you show concretely why that's not so much of a problem. It won't make them actually more interested. Uh, it's just more of a habit people, people have to come up with an objection so that they can, you know, mark it, well, mark it off. You know, but that's, that, that's my meta observation. <laughs> I, I just haven't noticed that uh, addressing these objections does much to generate interest. I mean, there's people who are excited and interested, and then there's other people who aren't, and, you know, addressing these objections doesn't move people from one group to the other. Uh, but nevertheless, well, we can go through these things. So first of all, sabotage. You One way to predict the world is to influence the world. Uh, so if we have a project deadline, 
one way you can predict whether we'll make the deadline is to sabotage the project and make sure it won't make the deadline. Now, this is generically tr a problem with all institutions that give you incentives to make forecasts. So it's a problem with all forecasting institutions. It's not specific to prediction markets. Anytime you're trying to get forecasts from people, and anytime you're gonna try to reward people for forecasting better so that you can encourage good forecasts, this is gonna be one of the problems that could occur. They could sabotage and make things happen. So there's a number of straightforward fixes. One, for example, is to try to make more conditional forecasts. You, you might say, instead of, will we make the deadline? You might think, would we make the deadline if we added more personnel or if we added more budget or if we reduced the requirements? If you just talk about, will we make the deadline? You can come up with self-fulfilling forecasts where we see the probability looks low and we don't try very hard, things like that. And so it's, it's just healthier to do these conditional forecasts to, to try to cut those self-fulfilling links. Another thing you can do is just say the people on the project who might be able to commit sabotage to make it go badly, you can just make sure they all have a positive stake and can't bet that down to, to negative territory. So say you've got a project with a deadline. You give everybody $100 if the project succeeds and makes the deadline. And now you can bet it. You can bet it from 100 up to 120, down to 80. Each And in the, making those bets, going up or down, you are revealing information. But we just don't let you bet it below zero. Once you're at zero, you can't sell. You can't sell anymore. You can only buy. And that should work fine. So to the extent you can identify the particular people and who have the special opportunity for sabotage, you can uh, give them those incentives. Now, it's worth noting that in the stock market, most everybody who buys and sells stocks could be sabotaging companies. You could, you know, sell a stock short or buy an option for the price to go down and then go do something to hurt the company. You could, say, poison uh, the drug companies, you know, things on the shelf, things like that. And it turns out we have just almost never found examples of people doing this, even though it's quite possible. So in the 1980s, I think somebody did go around and poison Tylenol capsules, and somebody thought they might be doing this to make money in the stock, but they weren't. 9-11, uh, people thought somebody might have sold short the airline stocks because of ins knowing inside information about the terrorist attacks, and then, you know, that could fund terrorism, but that didn't apparently didn't happen. The closest thing I've ever seen is somebody at Payne Weber, a decade or two ago, he was a computer programmer, and he put in a logic bomb that was designed to erase all their data and make the company, of course, have problems. They're a finance company. If they don't have data on all their clients and you know who owns what, et cetera, that would be a big problem. So this guy bought some options on the price going down and then stuck this logic problem in and, and erased a bunch of data. Turns out they had backups and they caught this guy. And that was that. So, so this, this should, you know, I think that the lesson is it's actually relatively hard for people who are willing to, you know, do mean sort of sabotage to get together with people with capital to finance it. And so that means cap sabotage isn't that big a problem, but it's something you should, you could worry a bit about. And there are some straightforward things to do. Yeah, it's interesting. And so let's address the money one, because some people have sort of this, you know, reaction to when, when they call things market failures to say, oh, you know, we should have less markets. And, you know, in certain things that, you know, just shouldn't be let, let the, you know, to chance of markets. And other people say, sort of what we're saying right now is, no, more markets. <laughs> and Well, so an interesting thing is often you have an existing institution and then you, and you say, well, compared to this existing institution, why don't we try this market instead? And then because markets have been more analyzed in more detail, people often say, well, look, this potential market failure could show up in this market you're creating. Oh, and that might well be true. And then you look at on the status quo, could a similar problem happen? And often there's just no model or analysis of the status quo. It's just so complicated and opaque. you have no idea what sort of problems are happening there. And so it seems unfair to take an institution that's easier to understand and analyze and complain about the things that could go wrong when 
the alternative is opaque and not at all understood and just being used even if big things are going wrong. What's a more philosophical critique of prediction markets that you most sympathize with or perhaps, you know, what are some of the limitations? Oh, sure. Yeah, please. I think the biggest potential problem is hypocrisy. That is, uh, so say this market on firing the CEO. It tells you if you get rid of the CEO, the stock price will probably go up. Or if you don't, if you get rid of them, the stock price will go down. In these cases, you are declaring out loud the outcomes you care about and which decisions you're going to connect to them. But what if you're trying to be hypocritical? What if you wanted to pretend one thing and really do another thing? So I've offered this larger concept of how these uh, markets that influence decisions could be used as a form of governance, how we could use markets to decide who to elect and what policies to adopt. And I think one of the limitations there definitely is that we want to be hypocritical about what priorities we have and what goals we have. And we want to pretend we're doing things for one reason and really do them for another. And markets get in the way of that. Similarly, for projects and deadlines, like I said, you know, it's hypocritical really to make everybody think you're right on the edge of making the deadline when you're really pretty sure to make it or pretty sure not to make it. But if you want to use the forecast to motivate action, then you want to be hypocritical and the prediction market's getting in your way. So I think all the way, all through our lives, we are often not being honest with ourselves about what our goals are and what our motives are and, you know, what, what are the key drivers of decisions. And prediction markets can expose those hypocrisies. And we, of course, don't like our hypocrisies to be exposed. And of course, it's not obvious that we, we should, should be exposing all of them. Some of them are there for good reasons. Good reasons like like what? Well, like motivating effort for the deadline. Yeah. Got it. Uh, or, you know, so uh, you know, many of the reasons are good for somebody, but maybe not good for everybody. And so this is a key question about radical honesty. So there are people and groups who over the years have said, well, let's just be really honest about everything. That's really quite a radical change. If you say in any sort of group of people, you know, anybody who says something that seems honest, even if it's hard to hear, we will not censure them. We will not disapprove of them. We will accept the honest, accurate information because we're the sort of people who just want to hear the honest truth. And that's a nice thing people might want to say. And it's just really painful to actually live through. We are really quite used to not being honest. And we have integrated our lack of honesty in great many ways and details into how we live our lives. What are the areas in which prediction markets can offer no help? For example, can they help us like to what extent would would you recommend that they help us in our personal life in terms of like choosing who you know who we should be friends with or who we should date or what? Well, so, so it's an interesting question. Well, imagine like when you're considering marrying somebody, you offer a prediction market to uh, various of your friends. You know, if I marry this person, how long will it last? Uh, or other sort of outcome measures of a relationship. If I date this person, you know, how far will it go? So you can imagine offering your friends and associates betting markets and those things where they can inform you about these things. But now, you know. <laughs> Will you really want to hear? I really want to know. <laughs> like, if you did that for for you got married and they said no, would you have followed that? <laughs> so I don't know. So I, I think it makes a lot more sense to just do incremental expansions of honesty. So let's take the places that we so far maybe are not being fully honest and try one at a time to expand those areas and see how it goes. And and maybe we'll stick our foot in it and want to back off and okay. I am much less interested in making grand revolutionary changes and everything all at once. Uh, that just seems like it'll go badly. And I'd rather just try things one at a time and see how they work. Uh, so even in firms, I think the right the thing we need to do in firms is more experimentation. So prediction markets have a lot of knobs you can turn to try different variations. You can try different questions. 
different people to participate, different kinds of rewards, different rules about who can see what offers and prices, different kinds of incentives, different kinds of vetoes over who could do things, different kinds of accounts you could create where people get to do things behind the scene and trade a lot that other people can't see. There's just a lot of knobs you can turn to try different variations. And I think we need to just search in the space of those knobs. And I, you know, other examples I'd say uh, show that you can eventually find things that work. So you mentioned before the analog of that I mentioned before about cost accounting. If you have a world where nobody's doing cost accounting and you suggest doing cost accounting, that will just look bad. You'll be basically saying, I think somebody's cheating around here. Let's find out who. Especially if somebody really is cheating, <laughs> stealing, they won't be too happy with that. Especially if somebody thinks they're cheating and they think you might find them. But in a world where everybody does cost accounting, which is our world, mostly, if you say, on this project, how about we don't do cost accounting? Let's just throw the money in a pile and we'll all grab whatever we want. And at the end, if we run out of money, that's how it goes. Well, that will sound pretty bad, too, because it'll basically say, hey, uh, let's just grab the money and not keep track of it. So you can see that you can end up with different equilibria. Similarly, I might say with, with perhaps a closer analog is focus groups. Many companies that introduce new products or marketing campaigns are now in the habit of having a focus group. They bring in a focus group of random people and they ask them about the new product or marketing campaign and they try to get honest reactions. Now, that is also like a prediction market risking unpleasant information. If you were sure that everybody would love this product and then you have a focus group and they don't love it, well, now that's going to make you look bad. And maybe you could get the focus group killed and maybe that's what happened in the past. But by now we've gotten in the habit of actually doing focus groups on certain things at certain times, at least. And the managers and other people have gotten in the habit of not declaring opinions on them. They go, they try not to, to say they know what the focus group is going to say, because they know the focus group could contradict them. And so similarly with prediction markets, we need to, you know, not only have certain ways of structuring them, but we need to integrate that with new habits and, and culture in the firm so that people get into the habit of not saying things that will be contradicted by the prediction markets right. and that being okay for them. Because that's part of the key disruption is that prediction markets have contradicted things people say. But again, with focus groups, that's worked so far. And of course, in firms that do A-B testing, which is actually still a pretty small minority experiments, they also have to be in the habit of not knowing what they're gonna, the result's going to be. And they have to be in the habit of not declaring that they know what the result's going to be. Presumably that's been one of the obstacles, firms where people declared they knew, and then they introduced these things. Somebody got embarrassed because the results contradicted them. Besides areas in which we don't really want to know the truth, which is so many areas, what are other areas or examples where prediction markets don't have much to offer? Perhaps, you know, as an example, maybe like moral or spiritual questions or? Well, so, so when you don't have something to see the outcome, you know, you know, what's the right action? If you could cast that out in terms of what people will think is the right action or what, what your moral intuitions will say or how you will feel about it. But if you aren't willing to cast it out that way, you just don't have a way to measure later what the answer was. Something that's too unimportant is also something, why bother? What did I have for breakfast? So often firms, when, when they've thought about doing a prediction market, they've thought about like, let's introduce some fun, trivial question, like what will be for lunch on Thursday? And, and then they realize later, of course, well, who cares? And part of the problem has been you say, as you start in and you say, well, okay, you want to have some prediction markets. Let's find your most important questions. And you start to identify them and they go, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> that's way too sensitive. And they back away from that and look for something that's related to what they do but not so important that it's sensitive. And, of course, then there's quite the risk of not caring for the answers. One of your – speaking of grand ideas, and, and I know you're an incrementalist, but one, one of your – in this field, for sure. One of your big ideas is futarchy, which is sort of, you know – governments run by prediction markets. What, what, uh, say more about the concept of futarchy and, and more broadly what role it serves for you 
in terms of advancing prediction markets or what we'd like to see in the future? Well, I talked about the way of setting up markets that predict an outcome given a decision, like fire the CEO or the CEO leaves. And that has enormous range of application. And in order to inspire people to pursue that, I tried to imagine the grandest application of it. And so a grand application is governance. We could run a whole country or a city uh, using this mechanism. And it wasn't because I expect or recommend that that's somebody do first. I think we should, again, start with small scale experiments and work our way up. But still, seeing that that's how far you could eventually go might be inspiring and might make you be willing to do the smaller scale experiments because it's on a path that could lead to that. So now with a, with a company like uh, with the CEO or, or the firm, the, the stock price of the firm might just be a, a good general outcome that you could use for lots of decisions. You could use it not only for who you hire, but uh, whether you merge or split off a fir- sub firm, whether you, uh, you know, hire a new ad agency, whether you introduce a new product for a lot of these products that these choices, that same outcome, the stock price could be a good outcome to use to judge all of them. Now, with running a country, the problem is we don't have such a simple outcome. Now, now we could imagine creating them. So, for example, if, if citizenship in a country was was had a price, then we might like use the price of citizenship as an outcome measure. Well, we want to be a country that people want to pay a lot to come here, uh, where and where we it's worth a lot to be here, so that if we wanted to leave, we could sell it for a lot. That would be a way of, of using a price as the outcome, like the stock price. But uh, that doesn't seem to be such a popular option. And so therefore, we need some other outcome measure. And a, a straightforward thing to do would just be to have a legislator vote on it. So today we have things like GDP, and they include some things we care about, but not others. And we can imagine just adding more things to a GDP measure. Now, the more you think current governance goes badly, the more you might think, well, a crude measure would still improve on the status quo. So I actually think a lot of things go so badly that just using GDP as the outcome measure uh, would still improve on our existing decision making. Uh, we, we decide whether to start wars and whether to do tariffs and whether to have minimum wages and all sorts of things just on the basis of GDP, and, and that would actually go pretty well. But it wouldn't be that expensive to actually add other things to GDP. There's a whole literature in economics about you know more general welfare measures, and you could just include all those standard things. So you can include lifespan, you can lose leisure, international prestige, etc. That th- those would all be straightforward things you could add in. And that would make the decisions even better. And so the idea here would be a form of governance where we have this national welfare measure. Some legislatures are are modifying it continuously. They're deciding how much trees count for and things like that. And then we just follow the rule of government that whenever a betting market says that national welfare will be higher if we do some policy, then we just do it. And we just do that over and over again. And eventually we'll have policies that the betting markets think are hard to beat in terms of improving national welfare. You you read on your blog a bit about you know, called it calls to adventure, uh, where you where you want other people to, to help make you know prediction markets and some of your other products, or, or you know, more of a reality than they are today. Let's say, you know, I as a venture capitalist, and you know, let's, let's broaden the scope. We're in a room, and it's VCs, CEOs, blockchain engineers, celebrities, and they're all saying, "Hey, Robin, we'll do anything you say. Direct us. What's your sort of request for projects? Like, what's your call to adventure?" Well, which might imagine what mood they're in. So if they really want to make money on this investment, then I will have to say, well, let me point you to a, the best case, you know, practical application of this. So I might do something like hiring people or student admissions or something like that, um, or student choice, where I'd say, look, there's a big market for people, you know, firms deciding who to hire. And so uh, we will set up markets on who to hire or, or on colleges deciding which students to admit or things like that. And I would you know, want to make a market pitch based on the revenue you could make from that market. You know, how many people you could sell this to. 
that would have to be the pitch because the, the focus would have to be on a particular set of people and uh, decisions and how you could help inform those. If they were more in a charitable mood of just wanting to have a big impact with their money on the world but not necessarily getting a lot of revenue back, well, in that case, I'll recommend the fire the CEO markets. I'll say, look, let's just go offshore and set up uh, one market for each of the Fortune 500 or two markets, Fortune 500, one on you know, the stock price that the CEO stays by the end of the quarter and the other at the stock price that the CEO leaves by the end of the quarter. And if we create those markets and just let them continue for a few years, subsidized enough so that they're thick enough to be, you know, informative prices, then over a few years we could track the companies that follow the advice from the companies that didn't follow the advice. And if the first set of companies consistently did better, then we could start to shame or sue boards of directors for not following the market advice. And then within a few years and maybe a million dollars, we would have changed corporate governance. That would have been a huge impact. And we would legitimize this concept at the top. And now people would be a lot more interested in applying it elsewhere. They'd understand it. They'd see how it works. And it would be legitimate. Just like you know, Facebook business plan worked because they started at the top prestige-wise and worked the way down. You can imagine, well, the thing to do here is to start at the top prestige-wise. If you have a mechanism and you're allowed to use it to fire a CEO, well, you should be allowed to use it. You should do lots of other things too. Right. And, and what if their goal was purely to satisfy Robin Hansen's preferences. They, they trust what you, you, want, you want to bring into the world. Which they do that? Well, I, I would definitely go for this demonstration project. Yeah. I would say, let, let's do a big, vivid demonstration, and we'll, you know, a million dollars in a few years where we're just going to show the world how much of an impact this can have on big, important decisions. I asked Tyler Cowen, for, which I'm signaling by just saying that, in terms of what I should ask you, and he said, cryptically, movies, not, not music. And so with that, it's sort of, what do you think is the ideal, if all, you know, cultural representation of prediction markets to get? Like, if all these sort of, you know, tastemakers of different industries came to you and said, you know, how should we make prediction market, like people care about prediction markets in a way that, you know, makes them, makes them want to use them effectively, what would you, what would you say? You're asking, like, how could we make prediction markets in a movie such that it would make people engaged by the idea, like a cultural description of them? Sort of. Like, how can we make them cool, basically? Well, I, I, they have enormous potential for drama. You know, I would I would describe some mildly futuristic, strange world where they just use prediction markets all the time and then, you know, show how that helped and sometimes hurt and maybe even have it, you know, in contact with a world like ours and, you know... In their world, maybe people are more embarrassed to find that their friends think their marriage won't last. But then, you know, they fire CEOs when they don't work. <laughs> and that stuff just works, right? And, and maybe they win. You could even imagine a conflict between a, a world where they use British marks a lot and a different sort of world, a business conflict or a military conflict, perhaps. I, I had a friend a long time ago, uh, Mark Stiegler, who, who did a book and, and, uh, and a science fiction novel. And in his novel, aliens were invading and we were using prediction markets to attack them and figure out how to attack. So they'd have a big spaceship that would be coming at us and we'd send a little small team onto their spaceship and prediction markets would be watching back home telling when to turn left and when to turn right and, and what to do at each point in the decision process as a sort of an action adventure uh, story about using prediction markets to, to advise decisions. That, that was his concept. And, you know, as far as I know, that wouldn't be a crazy story to make, to have. In, in closing, for the entrepreneurs, you know, CEOs, investors, engineers, you know, listening in who, who want to make this reality, want to do, say, this this demonstration, what are the next steps? Is it rallying the financial well, resources? I mean, the, the key thing to know is this is an idea that's been around for a long time and it will be around for a long time. Uh, you know, at some points it could claim to be sexy and at points less so. Perhaps this isn't quite the time it can claim to be sexy. You know, as usual, you want to just focus on fundamental demand. 
you know, you want to not get too distracted with being part of the latest whatever and just find a, a place where you could apply this and where people would really get value from it. You know, the obvious thing is look at big key decisions people make, like what jobs they take, who they hire, what schools they go to, what schools are admitted, who they marry, and try to set up markets on that add value there. Again, you know, these markets have a certain cost to set up, and the value they add is proportional to how important the decision is. And so the more you can find decisions that are really important to people and where they're arguably not including all the relevant information they could, uh, that's just the obvious win for getting to be able to show people, hey, you know, we can inform your decisions. We can tell you which job to take. We can tell you what school to go to. We can tell you what to major in. We can tell you who to marry, where to live. You know, we can tell you some important things. Robin Hansen, this has been quite the primer on all things prediction markets. Thank you so much for, for coming on to the podcast. Anything, you know, besides Elephant in the Brain, which is a fantastic book people should check out, anything else people should stay tuned for relating to prediction markets or your work upcoming? Well, I understand that Augur is about to go live in a few weeks here with their software, so I look forward to seeing that it works and people trying to use it. And I hope them and the other prediction market companies and, and blockchain that, you know, they they finally get around to uh, connecting their ultimate customers and, and getting people to use stuff. Totally. Uh, whether or not firms, they need the blockchain, still this is new software available and it could be used. Awesome. Thanks so much, Robin. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.